All right, good morning, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started. Uh, another beautiful Lord's Day. Hope you all enjoyed what is potentially the last uh, extra hour of sleep we get, uh, depending on how that goes. This is the end of daylight savings, which, if you're like me, means you have to remind yourself that the clock on your microwave is going to be wrong for the next five months. Uh, so, today we are going to be continuing um, this little, I guess you can think of it as like a subsection of this class, Spirit in the Flesh. Uh, we're talking about life in the spirit and kind of the uh, applicability of that, right? Because we're talking about uh, a lot of theological, a lot of spiritual things, this idea of the flesh and the spirit, this battle that goes on. And sometimes you can kind of get lost in that, thinking about, you know, just the implications and forget about, you know, what it means to me in my everyday life and how to apply that. So we're taking some time, um, Jarrell, uh, Randy and I, we each have this session where we're entitling it Life in the Spirit. And for my part, we're specifically going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 today. This is something I call one of my uh, desert island chapters. Some of my uh, Bible nerds and I uh, back at Florida College, one of which is going to preach for us in about an hour, uh, Jared. We used to sit around and play that game Desert Island. If you know that game, it's like, what three books or movies would you bring with you if you had to go to a desert island? We did the much dorkier one, is uh, which chapter of the Bible, which chapters of the Bible would you bring with you if you were on a desert island? And mine uh, was Romans 8 and John chapter 20 are my two favorites. Neither of those might be very original choices, but nonetheless. So we are looking at one of my very favorite chapters of the Bible today that we're going to get into. But before we do that, I've asked Randy if he wouldn't mind leading us in a word of prayer before we begin. So let's do that. All right, so beginning here, if you look at the heading of uh, chapter 8 in the Bibles in Romans, I think a lot of you will see just that very thing, the title, Life in the Spirit. And the, the uh, overall theme of this chapter all the way through is the subject of some debate. I've spent the bulk of this class preparing, reading different commentaries, uh, different essays uh, that are written on Romans 8, and a lot of them, a lot of prominent theologians go back and forth on whether or not the main crux of Romans 8 is about the work of the Holy Spirit, what it does in our lives, or whether or not that this is about the assurance of uh, the believers that they are in Christ. And they really go back and forth and back and forth. And these are men who have studied the Bible for longer than I've been alive. And the question that I kept having is, why do we have to choose one? I don't understand quite why it can't be both. And the more I read this chapter, the more it seems that those two are intertwined. And perhaps the greatest work of the Holy Spirit is this assurance that we are in Christ and that we are part of the body. And I think as we go through and look at the work of the Holy Spirit and the, um, the things that he does and works uh, throughout this chapter, the benefits, you could say, of the Holy Spirit, you're going to see this underlying theme of assurance. And that is the main process that the Holy Spirit uses um, to do his work in us. 
So let's go ahead and begin. We're going to be looking at uh, primarily a few chapters right in the middle. 9 through 17 is the ones that I've covered today. We're not going to be talking about other parts. Um, primarily, I did want to read the first couple verses to begin with in chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And we've talked about in a previous class with Jarrell just the tremendous amount of relief and just the excitement that you can feel reading that is that you, in Christ, no longer have a sentence of condemnation. It's not less condemnation. It's not that the probability of condemnation has gone down significantly. It's very important we understand that as members of Christ, there is no condemnation. What is that? That's a pronouncement of judgment, right? Not just in the present sense, but on final judgment, there is going to be something handed down. There is a sentence that is to come of condemnation or those who are found without it. And as long as we are members of Christ, we are justified, we are sanctified. We're going to be talking a little bit about exactly what that means. But we do not have to have the burden or the worry that that is a sentence that is coming for us. As we talked about, that's not something that all of us grew up learning, and that's just such a relieving, a very powerful thing to understand. If you want to think about it this way, if you want to think about like sin as water, and sin can kind of consume and drown you, but if you're in Christ, and Christ is your head, then Christ always has his head above the water. And if you're part of the body, you cannot drown if the head is above the water. The head has to be under the water, and that's never going to be the case. So, as long as you are in Christ, you are free from condemnation, is the way that Paul begins this very powerful thing. And I know we've talked about that before, but I really want to drive that home, because that is important, that we as Christians understand the great benefit of the Holy Spirit and of being in the body. So, we're going to go ahead and jump ahead a little bit. This is 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Another interesting uh, textual thing I discovered as I was uh, preparing for this class is that in the original Greek, like a lot of Latin-based languages, words have one of three uh, different types. It's, you can have uh, masculine, feminine, and uh, neutral, neuter, or gender-neutral terms. And the Greek word for spirit is traditionally a gender-neutral term is it doesn't have a, a masculine or feminine pronoun associated with it. Until the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament uh, forego grammatical accuracy uh, in the name of theological truth, is that when the Greek uses the word spirit, it attributes a masculine pronoun. Why? Because the spirit is not necessarily a thing. <coughs> 
It's a person. It's a he. It's a member of the Godhead himself. And that is really interesting is because the writers of the New Testament understand that we're talking about a member of the Godhead who works within the framework. And uh, that's sometimes tricky, especially in English when your brain doesn't work that way. And I've slipped up a couple times, I know, in class in the past. So if I refer to the Spirit as it rather than he, though, I'll try not to. Please understand, I have uh, full competency, I understand. Uh, it's just a little bit tricky, but I will try to do my best. It does refer to the Spirit as he himself, and rightly so. So I did think that was interesting. Um, so when we're talking about some of the things of the Spirit here, one of the main themes, especially in 9 through 11, is this idea of regeneration of the Spirit. The, fa the fact that we were dead. We were dead in our sin. We were dead in our trespasses. And our body, our physical flesh, is still subject to death because of that very sin. But the Spirit is going to regenerate us and give us new life. It's already made us new creatures through the process of baptism. But just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the same Spirit, the Spirit himself will also raise us from the dead and give us regeneration. It's going to be what brings us into the presence of the Godhead forever. And this is a really, really powerful thing. It's powerful for us, I think, um, those who grew up in the church, but it can also be very powerful if you don't have a church background, and if you came to Christ and you learned uh, how magnificent and significant this gift of salvation really is. And I think sometimes our hesitation in teaching the gospel to others has to do with the fact that this is a tough thing to understand. The gospel can be quite offensive, and I don't mean offensive in the way that we usually think about it, like politically incorrect, or anything like that. But the fact that we need regeneration, that we need new life because we are dead, is kind of a difficult thing to think about. <clears throat> Especially if you are living outside of Christ and you think you're doing okay. There's a lot of people that have this deception that, do I really need Christ? I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm good enough. The Bible doesn't teach this idea of good enough because, as we've talked about, with Christ as our standard, there is no such thing as good enough. You can kind of think about it this way. Imagine you had a friend, and every time that friend saw you, they brought you a gift. And that gift was deodorant and breath mints. And that's their gift to you. And you would say, thank you, I, I guess. I mean, it's a nice gift. It's going to help me. It's going to make me better. But what are you saying to me? Every time you see me, if you give this to me, you're saying that I need this. That's hard for people to grasp, and I think we know that. That's kind of our hesitation, right? That's kind of what bringing the gospel to other people is, is we're bringing them breath mints and deodorant in a kind of way, a metaphorical way. And um, I think the thing that the Spirit does is it helps us understand this gift for what it is is that we need to get over ourselves and realize it's not a matter of being good enough, it's not a matter of being able to get by without it, because there's no such thing. It's going to make us better. And that part of it is that rejuvenation. Um, any questions or comments about any of that? 
Yes. <clears throat> One of the reasons, not that we need to make excuses for ourselves, but the reason we tend to refer to the Spirit as an it mm -hmm. is because if you read from some of the older translations of the New Testament, the Spirit will be translated as an it. Yes. Um, realizing the need for that correction, the more modern translators, ESV, NIV, New King James, will translate it as he. Um, but uh, one might be excused based on just a reading of the, of, the new, of the old King James version of the Bible why you'd refer to the Spirit as it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, is that you have at certain points in history a uh, little correction there, rightful correction, the Spirit being referred to as he rather than it. Uh, I think that's the way it should be. Uh, any other questions? Yes. Uh, two comments real quick. Sure. One is, not to disagree with my head back there, <laughs> I think there's also some contradiction between, well, between it being referred to as a he in the New Testament, but also being referred to as the helper, which is how Eve is referred to Adam's helper in the mm -hmm. beginning. So, and Christ refers to the Spirit as the helper, so that, just to add a little bit of confusion. Uh, but also, um, I didn't grow up listening, hearing a lot in Bible uh, school about the role of the Spirit. And we talked a lot about Christ, and so we all grew up with a very a lot of comfort talking about Christ and the role of Christ. But uh, was that your experience in growing up in California? Did you hear much as a kid in uh, Sunday school about the role of the Spirit? Or is that um, for us the, to listen until I was older? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I actually grew up in Tucson, Arizona, um, and a little bit different of a background if you think California, Arizona, quite a bit different. But my dad uh, was a preacher in uh, Tucson, Arizona, so I spent the first 13 years of my life there. And um, it, that doesn't really change the answer, which is not really. My understanding of the Holy Spirit and his role and his work in our life is something that I kind of didn't really grasp until I was a bit older. When I was studying um, around the age 12, 13, I was studying baptism and getting myself ready to a point where I thought I would be ready to become a Christian. Uh, I did realize that the Spirit played a role. Whenever you have talks about baptism, whether it's Jesus's or, um, you know, Paul's conversion is that he was sent to Ananias who said, uh, you are here so that you can see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he baptizes him. I realized that there was a role the Holy Spirit played, but it wasn't until probably I went to college, I went to Florida, um, and studied in some of these more, um, more in-depth classes or upper division classes that we talked about the role of the Spirit and the particulars and even then, I would say, the amount of time I've spent preparing for this Bible class and the in-depth structure has even accelerated, and I'm still learning. I'm hopefully learning um, just as much as you guys through this class. Um, so yes, I think it was until much later in my spiritual maturity that I came to understand the particulars of this. Um, and that's exciting, because I get to have the opportunity to share those with you. But thank you for asking me that question. Yeah, that's a bit anecdotal, but that's my personal experience with that. Um, any, anyone else? Any other questions? Your uh, parallel uh, or your illustration that uh, I might be given deodorant and breath mints, uh, we might we might look at that as being something we need. Mm -hmm. We might not. 
But with the Spirit, it is an absolute need. Yes. There, it, we cannot have life without it. That is true. Yeah, um, the metaphor there to kind of get the point across of our hesitancy and the reluctance sometimes because of the uh, idea of it's like presenting the gospel is like saying to somebody this is something that you need to have uh, rather than an exact uh, parallel. But yeah, absolutely, the spirit is essential for salvation. I'm not putting down your illustration. No, no, I understand. I just, uh, I just want us to see that. Paul's message here is there is no life mm -hmm. without the Spirit. Absolutely. Yeah, and that is essentially what we're trying to convey to others uh, through that very Spirit. Any other uh, comments or questions? Okay. Uh, another thing we have here is the idea of sanctification. Uh, the word sanctification is actually derived from a word the Puritans use, which is mortification which is the subduing of the flesh, is something we've talked about. Uh, the word mort in Latin has to do with death, and I think the idea of putting to death the flesh or sin is not quite the same thing here, because when we live in this world, that's not something we can do in a permanent instance, right? We can subdue the desires of the flesh, but this idea that we can reach kind of this state of sinlessness. Um, there's a lot of theological stuff that goes back to the early church history about debates of that. We don't need to get into all of that. But it has to do more, mortification is the subduing, the putting down of our desires of the flesh. And that is ultimately what sanctifies or sets us apart. More, our sanctification through mortification is that we, by the Spirit, are able to um, subdue the flesh, and that is part of the Spirit leading and guiding us. And when we do that, that is part of what sets us apart and gives us, once again, the assurance that we are indeed in Christ. And uh, this kind of process that he uses is uh, interesting because this assurance we talked about, you know, God loving you, you're a child of God. Um, you know, you're in Christ, everything's okay. It sounds kind of flowery if you don't apply it and don't really look at it, um, but it's very powerful. It's not just flowery, it's not just all love, but the idea that he uses this assurance, that he uses these things to assure you, is so powerful because it dismantles temptation at its core. And the way it does that is that it gets you to look at motivation. The knowledge that God loves you and that you're a child gets you to look at the motivation of temptation. And when you do that, that is the most effective way that temptation and sin loses its power. I think a lot of times there's this idea that we're walking down the street and here comes sin and sin's in front of us and we say, not today, sin, you know, get behind me, Satan. And then we go about our days and, you know, it's very, very rarely that simple. Sometimes it is. I'm not going to go to this place. I'm not going to be in this environment around these people. And we go about our days. But sin works a lot more uh, sinister than that. It kind of sneaks up on us. It plays with our emotions. It deludes us. And whatever it is, if it's bitterness, jealousy, if it's envy, strife, lust, temptation, whatever it is, it's because 
we are substituting Jesus as our high priest, as our intercessor, as the fulfillment of every desire with whatever that thing is. And the assurance of the Holy Spirit, when it says to us that you are a child of God, you are loved and you need nothing else, takes away the power of whatever that is. Because when you know that deep down, when you know that in your heart, and you know that you have the assurance of Christ, that you are his, then you're not going to need, much less want, to do that thing, or much less participate in sin. That is probably the most powerful and most effective way. Um, that is how the Holy Spirit works. That is how it validates us. Um, that's not something that preachers always do, though. Preachers kind of, uh, if you've been in the church long enough, you've heard what I call stop it sermons, right? This idea where a preacher gets up and says, the Bible says this is a sin, so if you're doing this, you need to stop it. Knock it off. And then that's the end of the sermon. And I really don't know uh, for you personally, but that's not very effective for me because if the only thing I needed to know about sin was that it was sin to not do it, I would have a much higher batting average. Uh, do you ever think about, do you ever have times in your life where you wake up and you pretty much know yourself enough to know what sin that you are most likely to commit that day, that scenario that you're probably going to be in. I know I'm going to be dealing with this today, this today, and I know this is probably the thing I'm going to struggle with. And if I fall to temptation, this is going to be it. And when you don't succeed, and when you do fall to the t that temptation, you just feel even more dejected and upset and humiliated with yourself. Because you knew what it was, and you still did it. But you were thinking about sin the wrong way when we buy into those stop it sermons. It's not the idea that we know that it's wrong, and that's why we're not going to do it. You know, it's kind of like saying, don't think about big purple elephants, right? What are you thinking about? Big purple elephants. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. That is not at all effective, and that's not how the spirit works. It works on our hearts, and it refocuses our minds, and it says that Jesus has what we need, and that we already are justified, sanctified, and that the Spirit wants us to continue in that way, and wants us to feel accepted. And so that's really a powerful thing to understand, and it's not something that uh, all Christians always feel, and so it's uh, something we need to remind ourselves of. Um, and so you have two works of the Spirit all done through the same process, that underlying assurance. Pretty neat, um, I think. Any, uh, so let's, I think I have a list. Here's some of the stuff we've talked about. Um, um, so, so far we have liberates us, dwells within us. Uh, verse 9, the indwelling of the Spirit identifies us. Also in verse 9, regenerates us. And then we just talked about sanctification. Uh, any other questions or comments? Anything along those lines? Yes. You've been elaborating on justification and sanctification. <clears throat> I've been trying to teach my brother for 20 years that he needs to be baptized, but he's a Baptist, and he believes that they're saved in justification. Mm -hmm. And I said, justification for what? 
you got to go back to something. You're justified yeah. after you do something, mm -hmm. but he, they do not believe in baptism. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, um, you know, it's often been said, you can make the Bible say anything you want if you're going to pick and choose. And I think a lot of people use Romans 8 in particular to say, look, Paul is... Romans 6. Romans 6 as well, yeah. <laughs> this idea that, um, you know, faith alone or faith only. Um, of course, if you look at the totality of the Bible and some of the conversion stories we were talking about, uh, there's a lot more to it than that. And we need to make sure that we're... Uh, keeping the totality of the Bible in mind uh, when we're teaching others. So, um, 20 years is a long time to be working on someone, but uh, as long as, you know, we have breath to draw, um, there's still opportunity. So, I'll be praying for, praying for that. That's wonderful to, you know, teach our family members, the ones we care about most. Uh, any other comments uh, yeah, about this? In verse 11, the power of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I glaze over that, but... It was the Spirit that raised Jesus. Yes. That specific role, purpose, is just amazing. Mm -hmm. And to, to really meditate on that, think about that, and then, as Paul says, that's what gives us life. Mm -hmm. So are we truly living by the Spirit? Is the you know, Spirit living through us, that power? You know, are, we, are we letting that happen? You know, just mm -hmm. something to, to really think of. As you said there, is it regenerating us? Yeah. No, that's a great point. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't quite go over that one. I mentioned that at the tail end of my last class, is that if we truly believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then there should absolutely be no doubt that we too will be raised and be like Christ, because it is the same spirit, the same process that's going to do that. Uh, Jesus being the first fruits of our salvation. Jesus has not asked us to do anything that he himself has not already done. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more, um, as not just this class, but this class goes on about, uh, you know, what it's like to be, you know, living like Christ, um, kind of that regeneration, the renewing of your mind. Uh, Randy brings up a good point, is that being filled with the Spirit isn't just a state, but it's a participatory thing. Um, we are actually commanded in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. And it wouldn't be commanded if it was just something we had or readily available. It's a participatory process, is that we need to continually, uh, Lawrence read from Romans 12 today, the renewing of our minds, and, uh, especially in this chapter, if you read verses 4 and 5, I think sum it up pretty well. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, that those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. There is action required. There is walking requires momentum, forward momentum. It's the cyclical thing. If we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, the Spirit is going to help, guide us, lead us to keep on that path, setting our minds of the things of the Spirit. Um, very powerful. Uh, important. Um, yeah. Additionally, in that I cannot keep the law, that was Paul's purpose in Romans. Mm -hmm. To show that I cannot. 
wretched man that I am. Even though I should try, yeah. give my very best to it, mm -hmm. Jesus is the underlying uh, uh, need that I have. Mm -hmm. His spirit in me, I mean, he, from the flesh, from a fleshly standpoint, Jesus couldn't rise from the dead. But the spirit that was in him gave him power to do that. Absolutely. And that's, that's where it is with me. I, I can't be, although I try and should try, I cannot be perfectly obedient. But his spirit in me gives me that power. And I think that's his, his point in Ephesians 6. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Uh, any other comments, questions? Yes, probably. Kind of going back, what you, uh, Ian was saying earlier is, I think we don't need to be afraid of the power of the Holy Spirit and mm -hmm. embrace it more. I think, you know, a lot of times, um, like, as I was raised, and then I feel like now trying to raise my children, um, we don't understand everything about this Holy Spirit because we are fleshly. Mm -hmm. And so I think we kind of are a little bit afraid. But also going back to what Randy said, like, it should give us power. Like, we should feel like we have a superpower because we do. And I think teaching our children um, that you can't do that. You're right. Those are things you can't do. You can't resist temptation. You, there's... But with the Spirit and with Jesus, you can. And that's what gives you the power. It's not within yourself separate from the Spirit. It's the Spirit in you that, that allows you to be able to say no or to do these hard things that we're called to do. I think that is absolutely right. And I think especially as parents, um, that's such an important thing to emphasize is that being a Christian is hard but it's not something that you go at it alone. Uh, salvation and the walk of Christ is something that we have many, many tools, more, more tools than we could ever have asked for to deal with these very tough things. Um, the Holy Spirit and His guidance, also each other and uh, the brothers and sisters in Christ who we have to bear one another's burdens, uh, to worship with, to rejoice with, but also to mourn with to teach our children the love of Christ is to teach him all that he has given us and through that lens uh, realize how blessed we are because just as much as we lose, we will always have more than we have to lose. We can't lose anything fundamental um, to us. Of course, our salvation being chief among the. So let's go ahead continue on here. Um, yeah, this is the verse I was thinking of, uh, Carly, as you're talking. 15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. It's right there. Rather, the spirit you received brought your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Another example of the assurance of God's power. 
Uh, something really interesting in verse 5, Paul uses this word, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And what's interesting about the word Abba is that that's not a Greek word, that's an Aramaic word. Aramaic being the language of Palestine, and yet he's writing this to a group of Romans, and he uses an Aramaic word. Um, any thoughts on why that might be? Let me ask you this. Does anyone know what the word Abba means? Yeah, it actually is. Yeah, so uh, when you think about a baby's first words, what is it usually? You know, it's usually one syllable, right? And it's one that doesn't require any teeth to pronounce. So you got dada, gaga, or abba, which is the informal version of father. You can think of it kind of as daddy if you want. And what he's doing here. <clears throat> By using this word, not only is painting that picture, but he's also showing, or he's also quoting Jesus. Jesus in um, Luke and also in John 17, in the Lord's Prayer, in the what's also called the Prayer of the High Priest in John 17, uses this word, Abba. And here's a reason that he uses an Aramaic word, or this uh, word that was used by babies, baby talk word is he's giving the idea that in comparison with God, your relationship to God is you are like an infant. You're an infant crying out to be helped. You are just looking for someone to love you unconditionally because you are scared and you are lost and you need someone to reach out. And any, uh, you know, we've all had parents and we've cried and reached out for those parents and those parents have ultimately failed us. Not, maybe not ultimately, but at some point they have failed us. And they will continue to fail us, no matter how great they are. No matter how good a parents you've had, no matter how good a parents you are, that's what's going to happen. Is you're going to let your kids down. That's part of life. Now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. <laughs> no. But not, not parents yet. yet. No. But uh, yeah. This, this idea here is that we are reaching out not just for an earthly father, but for a greater one, a more um, substantial one who is never going to let us down, who will always be there to reach out and hold us. And there's that powerful, powerful verse in John 20. Remember my other Dead Island chapter? John 20, when Jesus says, Mary, you can't cling to me because I've not yet ascended to my father and your father. But go and tell my brothers that I'm going to ascend to my father and your father. Through Jesus, we all have the same father. That's why we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have the same Abba or Daddy. Uh, is that idea of reaching out and clinging. And we don't do that in fear, but we are adopted. We have the same. Uh, you think about the prodigal son. Um, I'll move into my final point. We're on, we're Drawing to a close here, um, but before we do that, any questions or comments about any of this? Yes, Jay. Your point is established in verse 12. In verse 12. Uh, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, but living We are debtors. Yeah. We are dependent, mm -hmm. like the little child who calls his father Abba. You know, there's, there is a realization of dependence that we must have as servants of God, as, as uh, disciples of Christ. Absolutely. Uh, it's the in recognizing the helplessness of our state That's right. that we establish that relationship. Right. Absolutely. Any other questions?
Any other questions or comments? All right, so the, we aren't able to get through all of the things that we talked about. We only got through about half of the chapter today, but that's okay, because I think we got a lot of good conversation, a lot of good points made. Uh, verse 16, if you notice it, it says the Spirit himself testifies. It brings up another work of the, uh, the Spirit. Testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. So this is different than just the assurance that we have. Us saying, I know that I'm God's spirit, or that I have the spirit and that I'm God's child. But this is the spirit himself telling us, telling us directly. Um, if you know about the old law in Deuteronomy, is that for something to be established in a court of law, and this is um, the word that's used here for testify is martyria. It's a Greek word meaning witness in the legal sense. So in Deuteronomy, to testify or have something stand in the court of law, it would require the testimony of two or three witnesses. The only witness you need to your own salvation, you still you need two. One of them can be your own. One of them should be your own. And the other is the witness of the Holy Spirit is this idea of a witness who stands with you and brings new evidence to light, shows without a doubt that you are in Christ. You think of something, a beautiful story like the prodigal son, remember, who left his father, lived in sin and squalor, and got to the point where he said, I'm going to go back, but I'm not going to ask to be a son. I'm going to be asked, to, I'm going to ask to be a servant. I'm going to be lowly, I'm going to take what I'm given, because whatever I'm given is more than I deserve. When the Spirit testifies to us, it is saying, no, no, no. You are going to go back, and you are going to have the reception that the prodigal son had that he wasn't expecting. You ought to expect it, because that is who you are to God. You are, the, you are still the same son, you're still the same one he loved, and if and when you go back to him, this is the uh, you know, reception. This is the treatment you should expect. And that's really powerful and it's emotional. And when I'm reading the scripture or I'm in a Bible class or a sermon or I'm singing one of my favorite songs, Praise the Lord, I am his child and my father up in heaven knows and hears and will be with me. Praise the Lord, I am his child. And... This is all very scripturally based, I know, and I mean, it's emotional, and I, I you know, kind of get choked up talking about it, because um, this is very heavy stuff, and it's just a wonderful thing. But these are all works of the Spirit, and we have another one added here. So here's some of the ones we've covered today. Liberates us, dwells with us, <coughs> identifies us, regenerates us, leads and guides us, sanctifies us, testifies us. And there's other ones that, uh, as the scripture, or as the chapter goes on, We'll see, but they all have this underlying theme of assurance and the power that comes from it and the work that's done in our lives. Uh, last comments or questions? I think we're just about done here. Jay. Notice that in verse 16, he uses the preposition to, not with. Mm -hmm. uh, with, not yes. to. Yes. So he isn't testifying to me. Mm -hmm. He's testifying with. There's a simultaneous testimony that I am a child of God. Yep, absolutely. I got that right there in my notes with not two, but rather with. Uh, thank you for your attention this morning. Uh, great class, great comments.
Really appreciate you.